Welcome to a special interview episode of Broadway Radio. My name is Matt Timonini. On today's episode, I'm in conversation with Doug McGrath, an Oscar and Tony-nominated writer who earned an Academy Award nomination for penning the screenplay Bullets Over Broadway. He also wrote and directed the film Emma, starring Gwyneth Paltrow, and he was nominated for the Tony Award for writing the book To Beautiful, The Carol King Story. He's also written for Saturday Night Live and The New Yorker and has worked on many other films and television shows, both as a writer, director, and an actor. His latest project, called Everything's Fine, is currently playing off-Broadway at the DR2 Theater. This one-person show tells a truly unique story from Doug's own personal life when he was 14 growing up in Midland, Texas. And as he tells me in our conversation... No matter what you think is going to happen in the story, chances are it's not what you think it is. I have not seen it, as you likely know. I live in Florida, so I haven't seen it yet. But I did have the opportunity to read the script, and I can agree. At every twist and turn, what you think is going to happen next doesn't. And while there's nothing in the story that I would classify as fortunate, so to speak, the way that Doug tells the story peels back so many layers of humanity and empathy and grief and sadness and loneliness that it really amounts to a truly touching and compelling show. The show is directed by somebody who has some experience working not only in the theater, but especially on one-person shows. One of the most acclaimed actors of his generation, John Lithgow. We, of course, will have information on where you can purchase tickets to see Everything's Fine at the DR2 Theater in the show notes and in the article version of this episode on broadwayradio.com. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Doug McGrath. Well, Doug, thank you so much for talking about this. This is one of those shows that when it pops up on the radar and you see everybody who's involved, whether it's you or your director or your producer, you're like, okay, if these people are all getting together for a show even if you don't know anything about it, that's really exciting. So I, I'm interested, before we get into the specifics of the show, about how you and John and Daryl all came together to get this show to New York uh, at this time, coming out of, you know, still coming out of a pandemic. This seems like a, a really interesting time for one-person shows, especially off-Broadway and on-Broadway. Well, I, I'm very blessed in that I have a theater guardian angel, mm-hmm. and his name is Andre Bishop. He runs, oh, you know, Lincoln's, Lincoln Center Theater, and is one of the great uh, people in in the theater business. I've been friends with Andre for a long time, and anytime I'm doing something in the theater, I ask his advice, and so I send him the the script for both notes and uh, director ideas, and he came back with one director idea, not two, not three, one, <laughs> and it was John Lithgow. And um, I didn't know John uh, personally. I certainly knew his his great work, but I didn't realize that John was uh, had been a director in his early career. And he had done a one man show himself that was developed, I think, mm-hmm. at Lincoln Center with Andre. And Andre thought he would be sympathetic to all the challenges. So we sent it to him and he read it and liked it. And we met and we liked each other. And so we jumped in. We did a reading of it a workshop of it in April of last year. And it was, we had about 50 people come listen and it was so enthusiastically received that John thought rather than go kind of the regional theater route or the nonprofit route, he thought that Daryl's beautiful theater 
on East 15th Street would be a wonderful place for it. And he originally spoke to his great friend, the producer, Tom Werner. And uh, Tom, uh, who is an enormous success in television, in the business world, in sports, um, read the script and really liked it. And actually, it was Tom's idea um, to take it to Daryl. And she read it and she liked it. And somehow, miracle of miracles, here we are. Well, I mean, it's it, it seems like such a fitting uh, show for that space. I've seen one person shows at, at Daryl's theater and it feels such like a, a good home. I haven't seen it yet, but I've read the script. So it feels like that place is such a, a it's small and it's intimate, but it's it's big enough to have a sizable audience. And it's uh, it, it's kind of a, a nurturing place, I feel like as you are stepping onto the stage, how long has it been since you've done performing? I mean, we know you so much as a writer, both on stage and screen, but have you kind of been doing things on your own like this in addition to all of your incredible writing career as well? <laughs> no, um, uh, I do occasionally act in uh, the movies, usually of friends of mine. Yeah. And I've, I've, I've been in uh, by, by through no, skill of my own i've been in several absolutely wonderful movies but being on stage i haven't been on stage in a long long time and the daryl roth the dr2 theater is such a perfect space for the show because what we wanted it to feel like is because i'm speaking directly to the audience you know i'm looking them right at them in the eye and telling them this story that happened to me and we wanted it to have the feeling of hearing a story around a dinner table some people would say campfire, but I'm more of a dinner table person. And uh, and that's what that theater gives you. It's that intimate. And it, it's made the experience of the last 10 performances with the audiences coming very, very powerful because, you know, the show starts out in a very amusing way and then slowly turns into something. Well, as John says, it starts out as a nostalgic and genial um, piece of looking back. At a at a warm hearted childhood, and slowly turns into a psychological thriller. That's a journey. Yeah, I, I having read it, like I was gripped going through it. Like I I noticed as I was reading it on the screen, like I was leaning forward as you would in a in the theater to to be on the edge of your seat, and I was just sitting there reading it on a screen. So we want to get into what the story is about, at least the the framework of it here in a second. But I I do wonder. So much of your uh, career has been writing and then directing. How, when you turn this over to somebody like John and say, okay, this is something that I have written and now I am turning it over to you. That's something you've done with other projects, but very rarely have they been focused on your own personal story and your own personal performance. Was there any kind of, of not trepidation, because I'm sure you trusted John implicitly, but like, was that a little uncomfortable to say this thing that I've created, I'm now giving to you to tell me how to do it? <laughs> well, it's a very good question. Uh, it, at the very beginning, uh, first of all, I knew I couldn't direct myself doing it. I, I knew that someone should direct it because it needs another pair of eyes and ears and another brain on the job. And so I knew that was necessary. The only question was at the beginning, since we didn't know each other, it was going to be that question of, well, are we going to see the material the same way? And so that we're working toward the same tone and the same goal. And what was wonderful was that very quickly, John has a, an apartment here in New York, but also 
his main home is in Los Angeles. And so during the early parts of, of working on it, we were, I was sending him drafts by email and every time he would send notes, I would kind of gird myself because notes, uh, are, are gird worthy. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, yeah. often. And, um, and they were always great. They were always like things I never thought of. Sometimes they were things I I'd thought of and thought, I don't think anybody's going to notice that. And he would notice it. Uh, he was just great. But the thing that really convinced us that we were such an ideal team is that often I would call him or he would call me and say, I've thought of a cut. And I said, oh, I thought of a cut too. What did, what did you think of? And it was always the same thing. <laughs> so he calls it our mind melt. Um, so, yeah. um, so it's been great. Once I saw that we were you know, like-minded, then I could relax and totally trust him. And I do. Yeah. And, and I imagine given his experience as both, like you said, a director in his early career, but having developed his own one person show over the course of years, I think he kind of worked on it and worked on it before it actually ended up on Broadway a couple of years ago that I'm sure that experience has been incredibly valuable for this process as well. It, it certainly has. He's been he scores in every department that I need him to score in. He's superb on the text. He's very good with the script. He is superb as a as an actor's director, obviously, but you would expect that. But he's just wonderful uh, enunciating what's needed, giving me ideas about anything to think of in terms of the performance. And, and then uh, you may not know this. I didn't know it until I got to know John, but he's an artist he he's a, a painter and so he has a an artist's eye for how things should look so he's just made sure that everything looks great the way it should and um sounds great uh and 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 delivers the emotion that the piece has there's a lot of emotion in the piece that you don't expect at the beginning because of the way we've set it up and then it just deepens and deepens as as your experience reading it showed you yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get into the story here. This is your own personal story about growing up in Midland, Texas, which, I, I, not to spoil anything that's at the beginning of the story, I have heard of. I've heard of Midland, Texas. So <laughs> um, so there's a, a bonus for me, I suppose. But it starts off when you are in junior high, eighth grade, and I'll, I'll let you take the rest of it there because I don't want to spoil anything. Uh, okay. And I'll let you lead where we go because I don't want to reveal anything that you don't want revealed. So take it away from growing up there before moving east. So the the story starts with me describing my parents, talking about my parents who were not Texans. My uh, father was from Connecticut. He was educated at Princeton. He had gone into the oil business. And so Midland is the oil business. That's a big oil business center. Um, but He's very much an Easterner. He'd lost his eye as a boy in a terrible accident. He had a wonderful glass eye that he treated with great uh, self-deprecating humor. He was a delightful, delightful man. My mother was working in New York when she met my father on a trip to Midland. And she was working for Diane of Vreeland at Harper's Bazaar, where she had become great pals with Andy Warhol. So she, she was coming from the wow. opposite of Midland. Um, yeah. And yet when they met, they fell quickly in love. In fact, my father proposed on their first date. Uh, looks a little desperate wow. in hindsight, but um, <laughs> but they, they stayed married for 61 years or whatever it was. I forget how many years it was, 50 some years. Um, and anyway, so in the beginning, I'm telling their stories and they're quite, people find them endearing and quite funny. But then uh, in early in eighth grade, we got a new history teacher and 
She was a 47-year-old woman. She was married. She had two children, but in college, so they weren't around. And here's all I'm going to say about it. She became, she took an interest in me, too much of an interest. Now, whatever people think when they hear that, having read it yourself, I think you'll agree, it's not what you think, no matter what you think, because you can't, it's such a bizarre um, and strange, and I feel ultimately uh, quite touching story of, of this, I think we could say, very lonely person who thought she saw something in me that might save her from that. Um, so that's as much as I'll, I'll say. Yeah, I think that's a, a beautiful way to describe it, because I think given a lot of the stories that we hear today in the news that are often sensationalized and often horrifying, uh, this is not that. This is something that might have some of the same bones, but it definitely has a much different heart and feeling to it. I, I read somewhere else that you had only really ever told this story once before. And, and it wasn't something that was, you know, your normal cocktail conversation piece. Um, why then did it feel like this is something that you needed to say and to put on a stage for other people and audiences to see at, at this point in your career? Well, it's such a good question. And first of all, I'd hate to be at the cocktail party where yeah. this would be a good cocktail party story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, well, you're quite right in that it, it is it's a bizarre and we think fascinating story, but it doesn't there's it's not often when you're either at a dinner table or at a party where someone says something and it makes me think of this story. I almost never say, oh, I have a story like that because I've never heard a story quite like this. There are many stories that are similar in in the general sense uh, in that an adult is taking an inappropriate interest in a younger person. But. But this one is such a strange way she took the interest. Um, when the pandemic came, you remember the pandemic? I'm familiar. Yes, I'm familiar <laughs> yeah, with it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, when the old pandemic came and all my other work stopped for a while, I, I thought maybe now is the time to tell that story. Uh, and I'll tell you why I thought that. Uh, part of what I think, well, let me put it the other way. Uh, in the early part of the pandemic, when we were all really, really, you know, huddling in, staying in the house, not going out, avoiding everybody. Uh, my wife, Jane, who's an extremely kind-hearted and thoughtful person, was very conscious of friends of ours who uh, lived alone. And she said, you know, now that people can't go out and go to bars and go to restaurants and be with people, we have to be attentive to their loneliness because loneliness is, is you know, it's tough on people. And so we reached out to people we knew who were living alone and made sure to Zoom or chat with them. But it got me thinking of Mrs. Malenkoff, my teacher, and and it got me thinking that maybe the thing, because she was not an insane person, though she behaved in an insane way, eventually. At, at the beginning, she presented as normal and then just went off the rails. And I wondered even though she was married and she had her two children, she was new to Midland, um, didn't have any friends yet. You know, they had just moved there. And I wondered if loneliness was at the center of, of what her problems were. And I thought, well, that's an interesting thing for us to all think about now because um, loneliness is a real issue for people. And I think that 
we're we're sensitive to many many illnesses and things but loneliness sounds like it's just a, a mood problem but it's much more than that it it can be deranging sometimes to people and so i think there's some value in 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 looking at it though i look at it in a both in a comical and a and a, a very suspenseful way it still allows you to ask those kind of questions and and wonder what the dangers are of it yeah that's that loneliness is such an interesting thing because whether it's in film or television or on stage it's it's something that we all know and have experienced but it's so hard to get to the core of in a story because it is such an an introspective unsettling feeling that but it's that's hard to communicate and i think that one of the things that your story does here is it it does really put her actions into that context so that as a bizarre and insane as you have said they are, it, you do kind of feel like you understand it, which I think is is a much more difficult trick to pull off from a writer and performing standpoint than it would seem just on first blush. Yeah, well, it, it, it is a it is a very complicated piece of material. When you see it, it's all it's very clear what's happening. It's not complicated in that way, but it's complicated. It was very complicated to uh, get the tone just right. Yeah. And, and also, I didn't want, uh, principally because it's not me, I, I didn't want to do uh, a show that was about me all these years later still being mad at her for what she did. You know, there are very few advantages to getting older, but one of them is that you can you can see things that you couldn't see when you were 14. When I was 14 and she was doing all these crazy things, I was angry with her. I thought, stop it. Get away. Stop. You're just you're bothering me. Why are you acting like this? I had no skill of analysis. I had no way to to put what she was doing in perspective or to guess why she might be behaving that way. But I've had a lot of life between then and now. And um, I think that it's um, that's one of the the joys of being a writer, too, is that you you can try and analyze what your character, in this case, a real person, but what what your character's motives are and why people behave the way they do. It's it's. I don't think we ask that question enough about people, and I think if we did, we we might be a little less um, <laughs> mad at other people. Yeah. Do you you said like the idea of people being lonely during the pandemic kind of led you to really think about this story throughout the course of the writing? What were some of the things maybe that you were able to figure out either about her or about yourself at that age and, and maybe even at the age you are now because you did that introspection you did that deep diving into these two real life people but as characters on the page that you were kind of working to mine all of the emotion and insights out of well the thing uh, i kind of knew the thing about myself which was that <laughs> i i was clueless and i largely remain clueless about a lot of things um when I look back at the story now, it is hilarious to me that at every single point I had to make a decision, I managed to make the exact wrong decision. It was just, it was well <laughs> beyond my uh, abilities to handle. Um, the thing I learned about her was I, I discovered a connection between her, not a real connection, an emotional connection uh, or a parallel between her and my father. Um, I talk a lot about my father in the show and I he also... He was a very loving, generous, um, wonderful person, but he'd had some disappointment in his life and he chose not to talk about it 
And uh, I think in her case, she didn't have anyone to talk about things with. I think she was probably quite alone in her, even in her family life. But my father chose not to. Um, I think it's that old school. He was a depression era uh, birth. I mean, actually a little earlier, 23. But they just didn't, you know, they just thought if you, if something's wrong, you just don't talk about it. And he was always a, um, you know, a very positive person. The play is called Everything's Fine. And that title is is from dad because everything's fine is what he always said right before giving you bad news. So, he, you know, he's like, everything's fine. Uh, your mother had her leg amputated. Wait, what? Everything's fine. The car's exploded. It just he always wanted things to seem fine, you know, to seem uh, the least bad they could. And I thought as I thought about everything he went through, I thought, what a burden that that must have been. You know, it's such a relief to be able to tell someone when you're afraid or um, in trouble in any way. It, it, it's such a relief. Um, and so I, I noticed that parallel between the two of them. And it helps, I think, keep the story uh, united as people listen to it because it doesn't feel like two separate stories. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And I think that that says a lot about the the empathy that you bring to the piece that you very well, like you said, you didn't have to because that's not what you were approaching it with when it happened. And I think that the instinct of you as a writer and as somebody who has you know, done your share of directing as well, that that's not the story that I think would have resonated as much with the audience as the one that you finally settled on. So I I, I really appreciate that that context that you, you add in there. Um, so the show is getting ready to open this week. You've already had a number of some, according to social media, some some very big name guests have stopped by uh, to this, which is always fun. I, I'm sure, given your and John's uh, connections throughout throughout Hollywood and New York and all of that stuff. But I, I wonder, as you go into these things, this is your story. This is you up on stage. You wrote it. You you've also lived it. When you have whether it's famous friends or family members come and see a show that is as personal as this, does that change how you step up on stage every night or if you know they're there or do you tell people, I don't want to know you're here until afterwards or anything like that? I'm in the same state of terror every night, <laughs> fair. <laughs> no, matter, fair. no matter who's out there. Uh, no, I don't like to know uh, before. Um, now, I do look at the audience. And so sometimes, sometimes I will see someone, but you know, the lights are right in my eyes. So you really only see maybe the first two rows and, and also everybody's wearing masks and I I can barely recognize my wife in her mask. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it's, it remains mysterious. Good. I, I, not being a performer, that would be the thing beyond just the performing, the the telling this story in front of people that I know would be the most terrifying thing for me just as somebody who hasn't been on a stage in 20 something near 30 years or whatever. But um, that's, that's very fun though. Um, well, to, to wrap this up, uh, we've kind of talked about the, the insanity and the strangeness of this story. But like I said at the beginning, this is not normally the type of telling of this type of story that we hear often in the news today. As people come to the show at the DR2, what are you hoping that they take from this without giving away like the, you know, the different machinations of the story itself? What are you hoping that they leave having thought about, having learned about, um, whether it's 
just about life in general, about other people, about themselves. What is the takeaway from Everything's Fine? Well, it's such a complicated piece that I don't think there's a single takeaway, hmm. but I hope people, I hope people, um, I hope it helps people think about forgiveness. I hope it helps people think about um, not keeping things pent up, about getting help when you need help, um, uh, whatever help means. Sometimes that means a therapist. Sometimes it just means telling a friend. But, you know, two of the characters, the people, I mean, in my show, Mrs. Malenkoff and my father, didn't feel they could get that help. And it was it was very it's a burden. Um, so I hope people take that away. Um, a great friend of mine had come <laughs> seen the show and he brought his teenage kids. And uh, and it's funny, there have been a lot of young people who've come and it's interesting because it's about a teenager. I mean, it's a, an older man looking back at a teenager's life, but it's it's all about my life at 14. So younger people have really related to it. And And what my friend said was they were just appalled at how I mishandled everything. Didn't tell my parents, didn't tell the school, all the things I could have done that people would do now. And he said, the thing they learned uh, that the kids learned is don't act like Doug. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> you um, get that on a button that, or something. Yeah. Yes. This is the opposite. This is how you should not handle a situation like this. And that made me laugh too, because that's great. If people come, I'm obviously not offering this as the way to handle it. Um, so I hope people come and it you know keeps them alert to um all the challenges that are out there in the world and how the best thing you can do is verbalize and get help for whatever's um upsetting yeah well that's fantastic i i wish you all the best with the opening this week and for the entire run and uh i know you're on sale through january i believe is that is that right yeah, yeah, on sale right. through January. So um, very exciting. It's I've, like I've said, I've seen shows at the DR2. It's a great space, and this feels like such a perfect show uh, for that theater. So I, I wish you the best. I'm looking forward to seeing it. And uh, whatever else is on your plate coming up, either during or after this, I'm, I'm sure that you're already probably writing something else as we speak. So uh, excited to see what comes next. Thank you so much, Matt. And if you come to the show, come see me. Will do. Absolutely. 